Okay, Fitoplasm Podcast, episode 106, Dune Messiah by Frank Herbert. So I decided to talk about Dune Messiah separately from Children of Dune, partly because it's a very different novel from Dune itself, and partly because there's an awful lot going on in both novels politically, which might get lost in one big episode. Um, Now, I think Dune Messiah reads a lot more like a thriller than the other two books, although, you know, it's still full of the same faints within faints, you know, the, the themes of prescience and visions of humanity and the views of various factions on what it means to be human or animal. But it's also faster paced and with more overt conversations. You know, re- recall that the first book featured a lot of internal monologue in the characters' heads. And there is some of this, but mostly the third person perspective is more traditional. You know, it's what they see and what they feel and what they say. Uh, and it, it reads a bit faster for this reason. Um, it's notable that it was originally serialised in Galaxy magazine, I think, according to Wikipedia. Uh, so this sort of serialisation, maybe that, that lends to the pace somewhat. Anyway, um, as always, I'm going to talk about the synopsis and themes. I will also give some remarks about the sci-fi series Children of Dune at the end, which, you know, it rolls both narratives into one miniseries, but uh, it does have the first episode is basically the plot of Dune Messiah as well. So here we go. Okay, so um, Dune Messiah is set 12 years after the events at the end of the first book where Paul rules the Imperium from his palace on Arrakis, and this makes him around 30 or so. The jihad that occupied so much of Paul's prescient vision in the first book has now happened, and the Holy Crusade by the Fremen has subjugated uh, 90 worlds and killed 60 billion people. And I think it's correct to say that it's steadily put down all other mainstream religions. So Paul Mordeb is a god figure, and there's this obvious tension between this identity and Paul the human, and he makes comparisons with other genocidal dictators from human history. Uh, But at the same time, he's also powerless to stop the slaughter in his name because the religion is bigger than him. And this was always a fear in the first book that he was unable to do anything about the jihad itself. Uh, It was a great fear. Uh, It's also worth noting that his pre-born sister, Alia, is effectively the oracle and mouthpiece of the religion, and her role becomes more prominent in the next novel. Recall that Alia is pre-born because she was in Jessica's womb when Jessica transmuted the water of life and became a regular mother, so everything that Jessica absorbed, Alia absorbed as well. It's the the whole thing about sort of multiple lives locked in the the genetic history that uh, both jessica and her daughter awakened to all right so for characters we have paul chani stilgar alia princess irulan reverend mother gaius helen murhim and duncan idaho makes a return as well in the form of gola who's a genetic clone um as well as these characters we have some new ones so there's edric from the spacing guild and he's a he's a full-on navigator floating in a spice gas tank um and then there's Cytel. Skytel, I'm not sure if I pronounced that correctly. Um, Skytel is a Tlaxu face dancer who has the same kind of control over their muscles as the Bene Gesserit do, but to the extent that they can rearrange their features. And this is an important character also because they represent the Tlaxu, who are also known as the Bene Tlaxu. Um, and this is a completely new faction which is not covered in the first book 
as far as I remember. Uh, the Benny Tleilaks come from one planet where they uh, push the edges of what is actually permitted and acceptable according to the Butlerian Jihad um, and the Orange Catholic Bible, you know, the edict that thou shalt not make a, a machine with a mind or the semblance of a human mind. Um, so they're, they're kind of these scary bioengineers and, and, you know, mechanical body technicians and cybernetic engineers. And they've engineered humans to be face dancers. Uh, they also create mechanical eyes and other appendages. Um, they've grown Duncan Idaho's Gola uh, in uh, axolotl tanks. I think that's a reference to, um, is it axolotls who can spontaneously regrow limbs? I'm not sure. Um, they make uh, other things called twisted mentats, which I'm I'm not fully, I'm not sure what, exactly what they are. I think there's there's something to do with the mentats not being bound and um, and having you know free will. They also construct humans distrans, uh, and a distrans is an animal which has been conditioned to carry messages over a distance. So in the first book, the Fremen used bats, um, but it's considered degrading to have humans do this function. But the Benetelaks think nothing of this, so they have humans whose whole sole job is to you know, carry messages from one place to another and act as walking recording devices, a bit like Johnny Mnemonic. But it, it kind of points to how transgressive the Benetelaks are and how different they are to the Ben Gesserit, um, which I'll, I'll get to later. But anyway, the plot is then a four-person conspiracy involving the Reverend Mother, Irulan, Saitel and Edric, planning to bring down Paul's Imperium and reclaim the bloodline that had been um, carefully engineered over generations. You know, recall that Paul is supposed to be a freak accident. He is the Kizatz Haderach, but he's come earlier than the Bene Gesserit planned, and as a result, he's not under their control. And this is something that you know is, is vexing to them and uh, is a threat to all their plans. So the four each have their role. Um, Irulan is feeding Chani contraceptives to avoid her and Paul continuing the bloodline outside the Bene Gesserit control, and they, they, they want they don't want Paul and Chani to uh, to sire children, which will be, you know, partly because that's Hadrach and, and partly Fremen. At the same time, Saitel is like um, uh, boots on the ground. He's sorry, they are manipulating things. Uh, and doing the spy stuff in Arakeen behind the scenes. Um, and then Edric fronts for the Spacing Guild and uh, makes the, uh, you know, he, he's present and makes the gift of the Gola of Duncan Idaho, who who um, goes by the name of Hyatt in this new form. Uh, so he, he gives the gift of the Gola to Paul. Um, also, Hyatt, or Duncan Idaho, uh, the Gola, has been engineered to be a Mentat. Um, now, the role of Duncan Idaho here is uh, you know, they, they call him a psychic poison, and this is this is the proposal in the very first chapter. Um, and I guess this is a bit like the way that Baron Hokonan uh, sowed doubt about Jessica's loyalty in the first book, which was a move designed just to confuse Thurfa Howard in the first book, um, so that he wouldn't actually see what the the um, Baron is actually planning. And Duncan Idaho has been programmed also to attack Paul at a key juncture in the end stages. What Sytel does, uh, they do the, the spy stuff and uh, the subversion behind the scenes. They first of all make contact with Farrakh, who's one of Paul's former crusaders, and Fadaikan, who was cured of Paul's jihad uh, when he encountered a sea on another world. 
it's also notable that Farrakh's son lost their sight to um, to a stone burner on their same crusade. But Farrakh has visited the Fremen tradition of giving the sightless to the desert to die. So instead he's chosen to keep his son alive. And that's kind of the first indication that the old Fremen ways are being um, undermined and subverted and questioned. Anyway, um, Saitel murders this family and then they take the form of Lichner, who is the daughter of another Fadaikin, Othaim, who we'll meet later, and betrothed to Farouk's son, and they use her form to infiltrate the palace and get close to Paul. Um, so that's one point of attack. Irulan is a, a second point of attack with her um, trying to manipulate uh, Chani's fertility, and then the third thing, of course, is the um, the edric presenting the gift of the gola and it, it's quite obvious that this is some kind of trap that's being set up but for reasons paul accepts the gift knowing full well that it is um a an avenue of attack for the enemy and the conspiracy so all of these actions are visible to paul you know the the face dancer is spotted by paul and stilgar they they noticed that um that there is, uh, they are not who they claim to be, and at the same time, it, it kind of plays out a bit like a mystery as um, Alia and Duncan Idaho find the body of the woman that that Saitel has replaced in the desert, uh, and she has been killed by Telexo poison. Irulan's scheme to stop Chani conceiving is thwarted as well. Um, Chani goes on a special Fremen diet, which is high in spice and also something that Irulan can't tamper with. And also the Reverend Mother, Guy's Helen Mohem, is found occupying a guild highliner in orbit and is taken into custody. You know, there's a, she, she's been told not to set foot on Arrakis uh, a pain of death, but she's, uh, so she thinks, oh, this, this doesn't break the rules. But in any case, she's being taken into custody by the uh, Fadaikan anyway. Um, and then, of course, Duncan Idaho is a very transparent threat. But Paul knows that he has to let things play out the way he's seen in his vision, even to the point of walking into a trap. So the the kind of the climax of everything happens quite uh, close to the end of the story. Now he, he visits another Fadaken, Othaim, who I mentioned earlier. Um, Othaim's on his deathbed, having contracted the uh, spitting sickness on on another world in the course of the jihad, and Othaim tells him of a conspiracy, and gives him the evidence of that conspiracy in the form of his human distrans and some, something he he um, obtained off-world. That's a dwarf called Bijaz uh, of Telexi manufacture, and Bijaz can recall all the details of the conspirators. But during this climactic exchange, the bad guys set off a stone burner, uh, which is an atomic weapon that tends to destroy eye tissue, and Paul is rendered physically blind, although he's still able to see thanks to his prescient vision. And this only adds to his legend as a god. Meanwhile, um, Chani has been on her special Fremen diet to help her conceive. And thanks to the massive amounts of spice in her diet, as well as Paul's genetics, her pregnancy progresses really quickly. And the twins inside her, who were later named Leto and Ganema, are pre-born like Alia. And Chani tragically dies in childbirth because of the uh, the the high levels of spice and the the very risky nature of her conception now in the end game it's chani's death and paul's announcement of chani's death that triggers duncan idaho's or hyatt's conditioning to try to kill paul 
But Duncan Idaho overcomes that impulse and fully regains his memory. So he goes from being a vessel that looks like Duncan Idaho and has scant access to Duncan Idaho's memories to, you know, Duncan Idaho being reborn. Skytail reveals their final hand, uh, which is to offer Paul another Chani regrown as a Gola in exchange for the lives of Paul's children and his chone holdings, which he, you know, he threatens the children at knife point. Crucially, at this time also, Paul's sight has suddenly gone, because this is kind of the end of the vision. He hasn't seen any further with his prescient vision, so he is now truly blind, um, and he can't see the path forward. However, he manages to see through the eyes of his own pre-born son, Leto, and to kill the assassin before Skytail can take the twins' lives. And in the end, at the same time, the rest of the conspirators, um, aside from Irulan, um, the rest of the conspirators are slain. So Edric and the Reverend Mother and uh, a traitorous priest called Corba, who's one of Paul's own Fremen priests. Um, and at the end, finally, Paul being blind, he observes the Fremen tradition of the blind going into the desert to die and, and be consumed by a worm. I want to note just briefly that uh, there's no Jessica or Gurney in this sequel. They do make a return in the third book which I'll cover in the next episode. But now I want to make some specific remarks about this book uh, in, in the sequence. All the things that I said in the previous episode still apply, including the humanocentric nature of Dune's Imperium. But this book does develop some of the ideas about wider attitude to humanity. There's, uh, at the start of each chapter, there's a, a different passage, which is, you know, the, much like the writings of Irulan about to the chronicle, the rise of Mordeb in the first book, there are quotes from religious texts, um, the uh, the rantings of the preacher in, in Children of Dune, and there's this quote from Stilgar, which says, quote, But all of us possess precautionary plans for devastating retaliation. Guild and Landsraad contain the keys which hold this force in check. No, my concern goes to the development of humans as special weapons. Here is a virtually unlimited field which a few powers are developing. So by that, Stilgar means that everyone has big weapons, everyone has atomics, and there is this great convention that stops people using atomics. So everyone has the ability to destroy things, um, but it's the subtle stuff, it's the low-level stuff, the things that fly under the radar by manipulating humans to be weapons. That is a concern. And we already know the Bene Gesserit's views on human versus animal and the concept of absolute discipline over physical form, which extends to the molecular level. And Dune Messiah then introduces a new perspective in the Bene Tladelax, which are almost the antithesis of the Bene Gesserit, by which I mean they basically see the flesh as subordinate to science and they're able to engineer whole beings. And they permit humans to be used as distrans, uh, they engineer face dancers, spies, and so on. You know, they they pretty much operate, as I said, at the very edge of what is permitted following the butler in Jihad. Now, we don't want much more about the Benny Tleilax from this novel, but it conjures a lot of similar ideas for me from other fiction like um, Vampires Tzimise or Melnabonian Slaves that have been surgically altered to sing just one note perfectly. Most importantly, it suggests that Selexo's society are absolutely okay with this, you know, that, that the body modification is a natural state. And this is also um, anathema to some Fremen. Now, Farok's son didn't want new Selexo eyes because they feel that they will make them less of a human, which is, of course, a trope that 
as adopted by cyberpunk, you know, certainly cyberpunk RPGs. It's also notable that the Gola Duncan Idaho has Selexa eyes, which are these multifaceted fly eyes, um, which mark him out as something exotic and alien, pretty much on purpose. Uh, thinking about cyberpunk body modification, this is often treated as a a binary state. It's an either or. Um, you either have the view that humanity and wholeness is good and desirable, and cybernetics are anathema, or you view that as body modification and cybernetics is good, and people are there to be rebuilt better. Um, and the this alternative philosophy of the Talaxu kind of feels like the difference in philosophy between vampires, humanity in the Camarilla, and the Sabbat's alternative path belief systems. Also, it's this underlying philosophy that makes the comparison between the Bene Tleilax and the Bene Gesserit interesting, uh, because without the philosophy, all you'd have is you know different magical powers and funny hats. Another thing I remember from Goethe Cyberpunk, actually, uh, while we're on that subject, is um, at the end of the book there are ideas about mashing up cyberpunk with other Gertz properties. One of them was to sort of go from early 21st century to late 21st century. And I think it says something like um, body modifications available to late 21st century citizens would probably horrify cyberpunks. Uh, June being set in the early 11th millennium, uh, you know, it's probably gone through several cycles already of soul-searching on the nature of humanity and whether the goal should be physical mastery through disciplines or physical mastery through physical alteration. Um, I wonder if the Fremen actually fall into the former camp alongside the Bene Gesserit. Um, the Bene Gesserit do have this campaign of sowing their myths into human civilizations. Uh, it's called the Missionaria Protectiva. But... Um, Although, you know, discipline and physical awareness are Fremen virtues, uh, and this is, again, a, a topic that comes more to the front in Children of Dune, um, mainly because it's in decline, uh, the, that's arisen as a part of the consequence of the environment. I, th I think it's a bit of a stretch to say that the Bene Gesserit's missionary protectiva has resulted in that same philosophy. But, you know, maybe... Maybe. I mean, this is June where there are second, third, fourth intentions to every action, where people second-guess themselves all the time, where schemes of various factions have developed over centuries. So it could be you can draw a straight line between the Bene Gesserit's philosophy and the Fremen virtues that they hold dear. But anyway, um, the Bene Slelax and the Bene Gesserit are aligned in this narrative. You know, the, the Reverend Mother Guy Salamahim for the Bene Gesserit, uh, Skytel for the Bene Tleilax. It did, though, make me think about science fiction where there are competing philosophies that drive the actions of factions. So, for example, Babylon 5 has the Shadows and the Vorlons. Um, and then there's a, also a close analogue in the uh, Shape and Mechanist setting of Bruce Sterling's Schismatrix, which you know, I've, I know very little about, but... But I do still know about the Shaper Mechanist dichotomy. It's, it's pretty easy to find out online. Uh, and the Shapers are basically interested in pushing the bounds of human beings through bioengineering, but also psychological training. Whereas the Mechanists are all about supremacy through cybernetic augmentation. Now, obvious analogues to law and chaos are there, you know, with, with law being the Bene Gesserit, with their breeding programs over centuries, disciplines around complete physiological control. 
Um, and then the Bellintelex, a bit like Chaos, you know, totally willing to reshape flesh to achieve certain ends, and almost being intentionally alien and transgressive. And I was thinking about this, and it kind of highlights a problem I have generally with the presentation of Chaos for a lot of fantasy where it's reduced to something completely amoral, unpredictable, and without purpose. You know, a prime example is the Warhammer universe, which adopts chaos in the most juvenile way possible, I think. And it really appealed to me when I was 15. Um, but uh, even The Witcher kind of sets my teeth on edge a bit. You know, they, they have this idea that the source of all magic is chaos. Okay, so what is chaos? Well, it's, it's just a pool of power. And really, law and chaos should be about achieving the same ends, but with different compromises made along the way. I think that is slightly truer to, you know, Moorcock's approach. And of course, in the Dune universe, neither are absolutes, because Bene Gesserit and Bene Tleilax are just sects within a broader humanity. Um, and I was thinking, you only really get to present chaos as mindlessly destructive and amoral when it's a cosmic absolute, you know, sort of, you know, your Azathoth at the centre of the universe, the idiot god. But the thing about the Bene Gesserit and the Bene Tleilax is they're still human-scale organisations, so they, they have to have some nuance. They do have a plan, and they do have a philosophy. They can't be extremists and survive. Actually, I think the only extremists in the Dune sequence, at least at this time, are those participants in Muad'Dib's Jihad. They're the ones taking on the role of unstoppable elemental forces with the Jihad subjugating 90 worlds and killing 60 billion people. Um, and in that context, you've got to think about how that Jihad came about. You know, the Bene Gesserit, who are the grand planners, the absolute law manipulating everything behind the scenes, caused the emergence of the Kizatz Hadrat too early and as a result, Paul upsets the whole Imperium and you know, changes the breeding program and leads to the Jihad. But the crazy thing about that is that Paul anticipates the Jihad and it's part of his destiny, but it's unavoidable. So in a crazy way, Paul is like the brothers Cool and Rin in Moorcock's Corum Saga. I mean, he's kind of a, a, on a level above law against chaos, he and, and other characters like him are aware that there will always be these constant struggles for complete control by some agency like the Bene Gesserit, which results in a sudden change and collapse and the cycle begins again. And I don't know enough about the wider Dune canon, but it does seem like the last crisis was the rise of the thinking machines, which resulted in the Butlerian Jihad, the, which is a you know, the previous apocalyptic event that was the turning point for this version of humanity. And I think this train of thought is leading me to also reevaluate Moorcock's Law and Chaos, but that's probably for another time. So, um, okay, moving on. Um, I also want to make a quick comment about the role of the Bene Tleilax in this story. Now, they are just part of the conspiratorial force in the book, but they're also something new that was previously not seen in the first novel. Now, throughout this book, they are visible, not just as personified in Sightail, but also in all the mentions of Telexia and also Ixian technology. You know, the, there's several mentions of Telexia's cybernetic eyes. You know, when, when the stone burner renders Paul and many other citizens blind, Paul offers to pay for Telexia's eyes for anyone who wants them. Um, but this is also a transgression against Fremen tradition, where the blind would be given to the desert. Um, the Gola Duncan Idaho also has these artificial eyes, 
And there's no real reason given for that, apart from how it makes Duncan Ido as something created by the Bene Tleilax and exotic and alien. So he's being intentionally presented as slightly weird and alien, and he has an effect on the people around him as a consequence. So in the narrative sense, the Bene Tleilax are being used to shake up our perception of the Dune universe. Now previously, it was just the Landsraad, the Spacing Guild and the Emperor who were the overt political forces, with the Bene Gesserit controlling everything from the shadows. But the Bene Tleilax in this sequel reminds us that there are other factions at the fringes who are weird and have their own interests and push the boundaries. They're also responsible for Bejas, the human distrance. Um, that's another example of how their presence is felt through the novel. I think I should make the point that the guild navigators also occupy this transgressive space. But there's an important point there as well. In the previous book, no one's supposed to have ever seen what a navigator even looks like. But here, we get a full description of what Edric looks like, and he even gets presented to Paul in his own spice tank. Now, possibly the guild thinks that it makes sense now to be more visible to Paul as the emperor. Um, possibly these visits were visited upon um, Shanam IV previously as the previous emperor. But Paul has shaken up the status quo. Uh, he's completely controlled spice production on Arrakis, so maybe the guild actually thinks at this time we need to be more visible to the emperor. We can't afford to be so secretive. I do think that you know, this is Frank Herbert refocusing our attention from a human society where complete physical discipline matters to a post-human society where some parts of the Imperium like the Benish Lalax, like the Gola, like the Guild Navigators, all transcend human form. Okay, moving on. Um, there's another major theme that I want to mention, and that's the changing face of Arrakis, which is part of the whole drive in the narrative of this book. And it's even more pronounced in the third book, but here we still have a dissenting Fremen who oppose the new regime. Uh, this... Um, softening of the people, the lack of water discipline, the shrinking of the desert as it's converted into the beginnings of a green planet. And I think I'll discuss this in more detail with the third book, but it's worth bearing in mind that the timeline represents just over two decades on Arrakis through the first, second and third books. So this is very much the midway point. It's, it's 12 years after Paul takes the throne. It's 10 years before the next book where Leto and Ganema come into focus. And the most important thing to appreciate is that these changes are observable in one person's lifetime. And specifically, it's characters like Stilgar and Jessica, although Jessica won't return to Arrakis for another 10 years because she's not in this book. Now, Stilgar is particularly interesting um, because his point of view um, is pretty much at the centre of everything. You know, he, he fought alongside Paul. He became Paul's advisor. Uh, in old age, he becomes advisor to Leto and Ganema. Um, there's a very memorable scene where he and Leto have a conversation in the desert in the third book. But Stilgar is a character who adapts. You know, he accepts that ways need to change, that the blind no longer need to be left in the desert, that water discipline can be relaxed as Arrakis is terraformed and so on. Now, he's aware of the tension between past and present. And like I said, I think there will be more to say in the next episode because this is a continuing theme. But this book is a significant halfway point for the trilogy's arc because this is the point where Arrakis begins to change and there is the most opposition to it. It will continue to change 
and another 10 years into the future, you effectively have the next generation. So you have a shift in social attitudes. But in this narrative, you have a lot of pause for Daikin and others who remember the desert as it was during the first book. And they were pumped up by the whole legend of Mardib, their Mardi. And they've seen a massive shift in their own lifetime. And this has driven some of them to desperate action. And that's not going to be the case in another 10 years when the next generation are coming up and they don't have the same history. Oh, time. All right, final point, which is the structure of the plot and the overall pacing. And in June, we have the anticipation of various traps being laid for House of Trades and the hyper-awareness of all the characters seeing plots within plots and so on. But the first book wasn't really about the traps. Everything that happened was pretty much inevitable. It is all about destiny. The point was that after the Atreides defeat, Paul came back in such a totally unexpected way. So the whole thing has, has this kind of mythic resonance. Dune Messiah feels different in that we're seeing the conspiracy evolve in real time with action and counteraction being taken. You know, um, Cytel infiltrates the palace, but then Paul and Stilgar spot them quickly. Irulan tries to prevent Chani conceiving Paul's children. Chani responds by recusing herself to a siege to adopt the Fremen fertility diet and so on. And this is an interesting kind of scenario where the protagonists are the establishment and they're under attack. And I think you could easily lift this for use in any scenario where you have a castle community or a planetary outpost or an independent starship on a five-year mission you know basically somewhere where the characters are cut off um they're the boots on the ground and there's a fairly flat hierarchy um, i've played in a few games where we basically were characters in the castle with certain duties and expertises and it allows for plenty of monster of the week type of adventures where you know you you strike out from the stronghold and resolve problems in the surrounding area but then you can also engage with political plots inside the castle you know infiltration of assassins and spies and so on and the Dune Messiah plot does fit into this second category you know it's this noble house under siege kind of dynamic even though it's slightly frustrating because Paul is well aware of all the threats but he chooses to let them play out as he's seen in his visions but I think it is actually extremely gameable for that reason all right um, I'm going to round off this episode just briefly by talking about media so I want to mention the 2003 sci-fi miniseries Children of Dune which is definitely worth watching and an improvement on the first miniseries um, everyone gets into their stride, I think. And plus it has some really great performances, including Susan Sarandon as Princess Wensica, uh, Stephen Burkhoff as Stilgar, James McAvoy as Leto, Jessica Brooks as Ganema, Alice Creech playing Jessica. So um, I can't remember the, the previous act, actor, but she was unable to resume her role as Jessica. So I went to Alice Creech, who is wonderful. Um, Ian McNeese returns as the Baron. Alec Newman is Paul. Julie Cox is Irulan. Unfortunately, PJ Moriarty is Gurney Halleck once again, although it's a much better performance this time around, so, you know, fair play. And this blends together the narratives of the second and third books, so the plot involving House Carino is revealed earlier in the narrative. Otherwise, though, it's a three-episode series with the first episode covering the plot of Dune Messiah and the other two covering Children of Dune. And I felt that it was pretty faithful to the books, although, like the other screen adaptations, it messes out some of the undertones around motive and philosophy. However, um, I think whilst this version lacks some of the depth, 
it does manage to be pretty coherent. The scriptwriter has looked at the continuity of the two books and managed to merge them together really well, I think. Um, the first episode, which covers Dune Messiah, is nicely paced and has a really strong dramatic ending that sets up the second and third episodes. I do wonder if we will ever see another screen adaptation of the sequels. Hopefully, the second part of the Villeneuve Dune film will happen, and if it does, well, you know, we can hope. One last point about the Children of Dune series. I think I remarked about how none of the Dune adaptations have captured the full puzzle planet ecological mystery in the first book. And the Children of Dune miniseries does slightly better, I think, which also makes it worthwhile. By the way, the CGI is still very early noughties. Frankly, that hardly bothers me. And I still like Babylon 5. I still like Lex. And the sandworms do still look awesome in this adaptation, which is all you really need to bring the Dune universe to the screen, right? Anyway, that's the end of this episode. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, share, subscribe, give us a five-star rating and review on iTunes. And if you want to know more, there's a Patreon for this podcast. Uh, links in the show notes. Music, as always, is by Chris Zabriskie. Find out more at www.chriszabriskie.com. Until next time, bye. Bye.